Hello and welcome back to Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. The podcast is available in the Financial Mail digital platforms and on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms as well. If you're just getting over the tension, deep anxiety, fear of not sleeping and twisted gut of watching the Springboks grind out a fabulous win against France in the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup last Sunday night, excuse me if I drag you back there for a minute. There were many fantastic moments. Cheslin Colby running down, French fullback Thomas Ramos' conversion, Eben Etzebeth doing almost anything, but especially that magnificent final try, Oxenchair destroying the French scrum, Damien Willems' inspired call for a scrum inside his own 25 after calling for a mark from a French punt, to name but a few. If there were ever any doubts about the ability of sport to raise the national spirit, Sunday night should have dispelled them forever. But for me, the key moment came early. After Kirtley Ambrose's first try when Marnie Limmock, Libok stepped up to take the conversion, he was almost on the touchline, and to be honest, my heart sank. Um, and I'm sure a lot of other hearts sank as well. He's a fine running fly half, in my opinion, Marnie, but he's got a mixed record uh, as a place kicker. As he lined up the ball, my mind went back to Twickenham in London, November 1995, I think it was. We were playing England. I was there with my dear and beloved brother-in-law, Donald Woods, and some friends and family. Donald was a fanatical Springbok supporter, and he'd worked tirelessly in the cause of non-racial sport in South Africa um, before being banned in 1977 after the death of Steve Biko. We won that game handsomely with Joost van der Vestes, and I remember snaking in for at least one memorable try down the touchline when none of the English players seemed even able to touch him. Back in the car driving home because... You know, you can do that at Twickenham with the right connections. I remember Donald saying that if he were ever to die, we would know he was still at a Springbok game if an important but poor penalty or conversion kick were to inexplicably change course and fly between the poles. He would have given the ball a shove. A heavy smoker, Donald sadly died of lung cancer in 2001, and when I think of him now, which is very often, I always remember two things. A song the drunk man he used to play for me on the piano when he visited our house in Amtata to court my sister Wendy, and he's promised to move a wavering springbok kick for posts. So as Marnie took that first conversion on Sunday, I was looking at the TV through my fingers. For nine-tenths of its journey to the posts, it looked to me to be missing, and then it curves at the end beautifully inside. Now I'm not saying Marnie Lebock deserved no credit here but I'm going to just assume Donald, if you'll excuse the pun, had a hand in it too. And now for the English, as the Afrikaans newspaper Die Berger put it on Monday. The old foe, if you're an Afrikaner. And to be quite honest, given some of the drivel I've read in the UK papers about our Springboks being fundamentally thick but big muscle men with no tactical nous, I'm happy to join Die Berger's sentiments. And now for the English. What worries me between now and then, and between now and a final, I'm going to recklessly guess we will reach, after a hard-fought win against a, a plucky English team, is what is happening in the Middle East, with Israel and Hamas and Gaza, and now southern Lebanon. There's real war there now, real suffering, especially in the wake of the murderous terrorist attacks by Hamas into Israel on October 7th. And what happens in the Middle East particularly when it involves the Israelis and Palestinians, almost instantly always transfers to Europe. There have been massive pro-Palestinian 
demonstrations in most Euro- European capitals since the killings began, but nowhere is this sort of thing more keenly felt in France and particularly in Paris. It's obviously nice for people who live in democracies that allow big demonstrations and other expressions of free will, but the French have paid a heavy price for that freedom. On the night of November 13, 2015, gunmen attacked a series of restaurants in Paris and a heavy metal concert venue, you probably remember. They killed about 130, at least 130 people. Islamic State, the Muslim extremist group whose tactics of inducing fear through horrendous violence have copied by Hamas on unguarded villages in southern Israel just over a week ago, then claimed responsibility. It was one of the worst nights of violence in France since the end of World War II, and it began, I'm afraid, with an attempt to take explosives into the Stade de France. Luckily for, for spectators at the French versus Germany friendly soccer match there that night, the bomber didn't get through security, and he later blew himself up, injuring someone else in the process. But the mere attempt tells us that the stadium is a target. And while the French may no longer be involved in the Rugby World Cup, South Africa is. South African fans will be there. South Africans will be buying tickets now to go there, especially as we're in, possibly, a winnable semi-final. President Sora Ramaphosa says he plans to go to Paris if we are actually in the final. I'd advise him not to drape himself in the familiar Palestinian kefir as he did in a show of solidarity last Saturday as the ANC National Executive Committee met just days after the first pictures of burned and mutilated Israeli babies appeared on social media. French security can be pretty uncompromising. Typically unable to read a room with much subtlety, Ramaphosa declared that he and the ANC quote, stand with the oppressed, unquote. Of course they do. He meant the Palestinians, but he was, of course, not telling the truth. Many South African allies and partners openly oppress their own people. Cuba does. I've seen it in action. I've been there, lived there, stayed there. The Chinese do. The Russians kill their neighbors and imprison their opponents. So who are these oppressed people Ramaphosa carefully selects to stand with? Palestinians, yes, we know that. The people of the Western Sahara. Who else? It doesn't really matter, I suppose. It's all politics. Just like allowing settlements to spread into areas reserved under international agreements for Palestinians, it's just internal Israeli politics. If you allow settlers to take whatever land they want in the West Bank, you get to be Prime Minister. Yay! I really resent the Middle East. It's all so intractable. And it's impossible to stand anywhere, really, uh, especially in the middle, without getting into trouble. It can't be the religion. Indonesia, the world's biggest Muslim country, is a functioning democracy. So there must be something inherent in the Middle East that keeps reproducing kings and or dictators in an endless cycle that I really don't get. I'm sure I'm not alone. And I know that these taking sides doesn't mean you know what's going on. You're just living out your prejudices, which is how most of us humans uh, spend our brief time here on Earth. For evidence of this, watch the Americans. President Joe Biden was, for a man of his age, out of the blocks like a sprinter with his rapid declaration of fidelity to Israel after the attacks. Biden, facing elections next year, has to keep both the U.S. Joe Jewish vote and hawkish Americans on side. He quickly visited Israel while it was and is in the middle of conducting bombing raids over Gaza and preparing for war with Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. It's almost unheard of situation for a sitting U.S. president, and he made sure 
He has not one but two aircraft carrier groups in the Mediterranean off Israel, Lebanon and Egypt. The Americans may be publicly standing by Israel, but they're also desperately trying to limit the amount of killing the Israelis do in reprisal. At the time of this recording, Israeli ground forces had not ended Gaza en masse after pouring thousands of tons, or dropping thousands of tons of ordnance on the strip from the air to soften it up. But that's the plan. And if they do go in, the Iranians who support Hamas, and in particular Hezbollah, will feel compelled to do something themselves. That's why the carrier groups are there, mainly for the Iranians. And then the Saudis, who the Americans have spent a long time and big effort trying to encourage into a new diplomatic arrangement with Israel, would have to respond. The whole edifice could revert could revert to the Middle East of the 70s and 80s. A mess. The price of oil will rocket and terrorism could spread. That's the immediate danger. The madmen who think killing civilians at concerts or festivals or in their sleep is revolutionary know no niceties. I really feel for the French. They have, as I said earlier, had to suck up a lot. And they hold the Olympic Games next year. Can you just imagine the security nightmare and outbreak of war between Israel and its neighbours would now create in the French capital. The Rugby World Cup has just over a week to run, and we must pray it goes quietly, and, if we can, well for us. Nothing is guaranteed, however. Last Saturday, the Louvre Museum and the Palace of Versailles, two big tourist attractions in Paris, were shut down and evacuated after terrorist threats. Pro-Palestinian marches have been banned, which will only make, in my view, the situation in the capital more combustible. And France, don't forget, is now on the highest level of terror alert. So be careful out there. That's it for me. I can't wait for more rugby from the safety of my my TV room down here in the south. The games last weekend were so thrilling I could barely talk after them. And while the English will be no pushover, I think the box can take them. And then presuming New Zealand do the same to Argentina... Then it's a real old foe for us in the final, and who knows what that means. Meanwhile, take care and enjoy, while you can, ESCOM's return to something that vaguely resembles normality. Bye-bye.